Is there a pun? Dare I ask? No, it's more of a story. Okay. So so I, I actually asked my daughter. I, I asked her why the cost of care in the United States was so odd. And she looked at me, normal 17-year-old girl, and she said, I can't even. <laughs> I have to agree with her. She's very wise. <laughs> I know. She's also my daughter. <laughs> This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with the American College of Physicians and supported by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Stuart, did you want to start the show again? No. (laughs) All right. Well, we should just start. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm doing great. I I smacked my mic. (laughs) I know Paul's here, too, and I'm going to introduce our producer in a second, but... uh, on the show tonight, we talk about cost of care. It's one of my favorite topics. It is. Stuart, you are very well suited to be talking about this topic. But before we tell the audience all the high costly. points of the show, <laughs> before we tell the audience some of the high points of the show, Paul, could you remind them in general, what, what do we do on this show here? In general, <laughs> we, in general, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As a reminder, we also get to know our guests at front, um, find out what makes them three-dimensional people and not just slaves to the healthcare system. So, I mean, if you skip past that, you're probably making us all a little bit more like automatons. So just just listen um, and save healthcare. Thank you, Paul. Uh, wonderful as always. And I would like to I would like to introduce our our producer, Dr. Elena Gibson, recently minted doctor and current intern, Elena Gibson. Um, Dr. Gibson, thank you for joining us. I'm going to say doctor as many times as I can. Oh, I know. I'm not even just <laughs> saying it myself. So. I do, I, Thank you. Stuart was mentioning this to our guests earlier, but we're so proud when all these people who joined us as medical students are now doctors and, you know, having to use their titles and feeling uncomfortable about it. It's great. <laughs> You're a part of that. Yeah. Elena, so. So can you tell can you tell the audience, like, what are some of the high points about what we discussed about cost of care? Yeah, so had a really good conversation about the importance of cost of care conversations with patients and providers and some of the barriers to those conversations that we could all recognize in our own practice. And then also how to incorporate these conversations as a routine part of care and some tools and tips on really how to do that and just go out and make it happen. I, I think there was some really great usable advice. And just to kind of tease tease the advice up front, uh, part of the advice was just like, yeah, you're probably not going to be great at it, uh, but just just try it anyway. It doesn't have to be perfect. At least like doing it is better than not doing it. Talking about cost of care. <laughs> that was one of my big take-home points. Sure. No, on my tombstone. <laughs> okay. Not great, but you did it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm happy to tell you about our first guest, uh, Gwen Darian. Gwen is a longtime patient advocate who has played leadership roles in some of the country's preeminent nonprofit organizations. As executive vice president for patient advocacy and engagement, Gwen leads 
programs that link the Patient Advocacy Foundation's patient services programs to the NPAF initiatives with the goal of improving access to affordable, equitable, quality health care. Called A Bit of a Renegade by People Magazine, which is my favorite part of the entire bio. Amazing. Gwen has long insisted on pushing boundaries while maintaining a safe space for patients um, and serves as the editor and publisher of MAM, a magazine for women with breast or reproductive cancer. As a three-time cancer survivor herself, Gwen came into cancer advocacy expressly to change the experiences and outcomes for the patients who came after her, and to change the public dialogue about cancer and other life-threatening illnesses. With these goals in mind, in 2005, she started the first standalone advocacy entity in a professional cancer research organization at the American Association for Cancer Research, causing outside observers to note the organization's progressive commitment to patient advocacy. Gwen has consistently championed placing patients at the center of health system change, whether it is for research, public policy, or direct services. She is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, where she has also served as an advisor for their health advocacy program. She grew up in Milwaukee, but now lives in New Jersey, where she cooks Persian dishes, collects earrings, and, as we discussed later, improves her friend's personal libraries one book at a time. Stuart, why don't you tell us about Dr. Jessica Dine? Well, thank you, Paul. Wait, that was that was air quotes. Well, thanks, Paul. <laughs> Dr. Je- Jessica Dine, she is an associate professor and chief of the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine, associate dean of faculty development at, for the Perlman School of Medicine, co-director for the Meezy Medical Education Fellowship, and served as an associate program director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program. Nationally, she serves as an educational consultant to the American College of Physicians, working on numerous high-quality care initiatives, including several projects trying to improve the frequency and quality of cost-of-care conversations between patients and their healthcare professionals. She was recently selected a Macy Faculty Scholar focusing on professional development related to interprofessional collaboration and teamwork. Dr. Dine's scholarly work is focused on understanding and improving how physicians learn and practice throughout their careers, with a special particular focus on practice pattern formation, educational program evaluation, competency assessment, and interprofessional collaboration. Needless to say, she is eminently qualified to be one of our guests tonight. Let's get started. Jessica, I'll throw the question to you first. Can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and tell them something about yourself outside the world of medicine? So I am a pulmonologist and medical educator who loves to travel and spend time with my three kids. Any great trips you wanted to tell us about? Any any fun spots recently? Well, because my kids are so little, we haven't actually traveled much. <laughs> uh, but I think my favorite trip was Switzerland. That sounds good. Gwen, how about you? Can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and maybe include a hobby or interest you have uh, outside of what you do in the world of medicine? Sure. I am a three-time cancer survivor. I love to read. I have, um, we have thousands of books in our house. We also have hundreds of cookbooks. Both my husband and I are um, serious cooks. Uh, I am a Persian. I do a lot of Persian cooking. Um, I love my work and I love to read and I love my play and I believe in an, I believe in a balance of work and play and try to, um, and try to model that for everybody who's on the team that I lead as well. Dr. Williams. Well, I, I feel like just, well, talking about the bio, you're the person to ask. So please Gwen, improve my library. What, so what, <laughs> what is something that I should be reading this summer that I, that I have not read yet? 
Yeah, so I was thinking about this before because I saw I, I was thinking about what book would I recommend because usually it's the last book I read. Right. But then I thought about what was the book that moved me the most that I read in the last year. And that was a book by a woman named Jasmine Ward called Sing Unburied Sing. And it's about um it's about a young um it's about a family that is uh in the South. She lives in the Mississippi Delta. Um, a young black boy and his rather troubled mother and father and what happens when they pick his father up from jail and take him out of jail. And it's, she's an incredibly beautiful and evocative writer and um, her, she's written two books that have won national book awards, one right after the other. She's a young, a young uh, writer who lives in Mississippi. So this is the second of the two books. The first one was called salvage the bones. Um, so if you want to be moved and you want to have something that also is extraordinarily timely, given what's happened, what, where the, you know, the world we live in right now, I would highly recommend Jasmine Ward. And great recommendation. Thank you. How about the same question to you, Jessica? You know, now I'm going to sound so boring <laughs> um, and nerdy. I think that um, the book that popped out was The Quiet American by Graham Greene. I don't know why, but it just stuck with me since high school. The Quiet American. Can you, give us a, can you give us a little synopsis? I'm actually not familiar. I'm looking it up on Amazon right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's about an American journalist in Vietnam uh, who develops a friendship with another American there. There's only nine left in stock. I'm sure thirty-one ninety-five. <laughs> I can't tell you any more because not a lot happens, but it feels like a lot happens. Huh. Uh, Stuart, did you want to ask any questions before we get on to discussing cost of care? Um, what what is the best advice that you've received as an educator, learner, or mentor? So I think the best advice I ever, the actually the best thing I ever learned was that what is to always question received wisdom. And that's something that I've learned as a, um, as an advocate, as a teacher, I used to teach in a master's of fine art photography program. Um, and as a person who inter interacts with the healthcare system all of the time. And one of the, one of the things that's really tenacious in this whole um, cost of care conversation and the kind of the thinking about barriers of cost of care is that it takes a really long time to have these conversations, but in fact, it doesn't. And um, research shows, and Peter Eubel's research has shown um, that it only takes a couple minutes. And the longer, if you if you start off with a cost of care conversation on the first visit and, and expand cost of care to not just treatment costs, but the cost of health and returning to wellness, it is, you save so much time in the end and you save so many resources, both financial, financial, personal, um, relationship resources, but we, we assume it, that many people don't do it because they assume it's going to take a long time, but in fact, generally it does not take that long. And Jessica, I see that you're involved a lot with faculty development. Similar question to you, but what's the best advice that you could give to new faculty when it comes to uh, their own personal growth, either for themselves or as a teacher mentor? Now you're going to put me on the spot. The best advice I would give. Um, I think that in terms of cost of care conversations, I would say to remember that we see the world through our own lens 
And the reason I bring that up is because we make assumptions over who is struggling with the cost of care, um, but we really just don't know who is. And so ask everybody. And the second piece of advice would be to listen. Sort of goes to Gwen's point. We think that if we let a patient talk, it's going to take for a while. It's going to take too much time, but we can't help them if we're not listening to what is actually causing their cost distress. Stuart, I see you have a pick of the week, which I think is a very appropriate pick of the week. So why don't you tell the audience about this book? Yeah, so my, my pick of the week is is very applicable. It's an American sickness, uh, how healthcare became big business and how you can take it back by Elizabeth Rosenthal. I thought this was applicable only because, well, I mean, obviously we're talking about cost of care, but it goes really into the specifics of uh, the American healthcare industry and what kind of brought us here gives a lot of the background information for things like insurance companies, reimbursements, um, and why it is that we got in this quagmire that we're currently in. And uh, I, I put in our in our show notes or in, in our script, actually, it's a graph that looks at the growth of costs for healthcare administrators versus physicians. That's one of the things that is at least a sidebar conversation in the book, talking about the effect of of uh, growth of costs for non-direct healthcare costs. And that's one of the things that I foot stomp when I try to talk about cost of care is we've got to look at where we're hemorrhaging money when it, when it has nothing to do with the actual delivery of healthcare. That graph is pretty striking that you put up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, can, I can put it in the window. It's, it, it makes me very sick to my stomach. Okay, and uh, we'll find we'll find a way to share that or link to that in in the show notes. Uh, it's probably copyrighted, so I'm not sure uh, how much we'll be able to do that. But it basically shows that the growth of well, Stuart, your graph. Why don't you you tell them what 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 the, the one that I'm referring to? Yeah, it basically shows that the growth of healthcare costs when it comes to physician reimbursement. Um, so physician reimbursement from about. Uh, and, and it doesn't really show this that, that well, but from about 1990 to about 2009, increased by about 55%. But the cost for non-healthcare, so non, non-physicians for healthcare administration grew about 148%, and that, that was up to 2005. So it doesn't really include the, the, the growth after 2005, but it's just, it's very striking, it's very concerning, and unfortunately makes me very sick to my stomach. And for those on the call, this is what I'm referring to this here. We talk so much about the cost of treatment, but we don't talk about the cost of care. So a lot of people focus on the cost of drugs or the cost of treatment or the cost of doctor visits. But if you can't get to the doctor because you can't afford the transportation or if you can't afford your copay for either your clinician or your, um, or your drugs, you're not going to get health care. So I think we focus way too soon on this conversation without looking at the whole, we're looking at the context of the, of the circumstances in which people live. Can I add that I'm incredibly happy that you brought that up because a lot of what we're going to be talking about feels like band-aids to a bigger problem. And I, I think it's really important for us to recognize that our system is broken and we also have to think about how to fix the system. Right. Yeah. We had a, we had a similar conversation about like wellness the other day where we were like, yeah, okay, you could do your personal wellness stuff, but if the system is still, uh, you know, just driving you crazy, like your own personal wellness is going to only do so much. So, you know, I guess you're making a similar statement that, um, you know, the individuals can only do so much. There has to be bigger changes at like a system level in order to really move the needle for all this. 
I want, uh, Jessica, can you maybe talk about, you know, a little bit more about why these are important? Is there evidence backing that up? Is like, you know, patients worrying about cost of care? How does that affect, you know, their their outcomes or how does that affect their their adherence to what we're trying to do for them? Yeah, it's an important question. And more and more data is coming out that it really does impact uh, their outcomes. So for the past couple of years, we've seen that it decreases adherence. Uh, they, I think it was somewhere around 30% of adults report not having followed recommended treatment because of cost. But now there's also data coming out that it actually causes a decreased survival, and that's in the oncology literature. So it's an important thing to address to help our patients. The patients that we serve through our direct patient services at Patient Advocate Foundation are primarily lower income, um, vulnerable populations, but they are also primarily insured. And most people are underinsured. People have to choose and they make trade-offs. They, tra- they trade off whether they're going to um, whether they're going to eat or whether they're going to take their medicine. The other aspect of that, because people cut their pills in half, people choose between eating and um, they choose between they don't have their transportation, they don't fill prescriptions because they can't afford their copay. The way, one way of alleviating this and alleviating those barriers is to um, is to really focus on the communication between the healthcare provider and the patient, so that they can talk about these these things these things together and help um, help address them before they become um, large, um, unmovable problems. And also understand that that is if you have that relationship, it also helps you have those conversations. So one of the things I think we learned and I learned, even though it's, it seems so obvious, but it is often implicit rather than explicit. We focus very much on the costs of things, but we don't really focus on talking about money. And there's a big difference between talking about the cost of care and really talking about personal finances and money. And to cost of care sort of structural, it's, it feels a little more objective. Talking about money is intensely personal, and most people don't like to talk about their personal financial situation um, circumstances. But if you can create a relationship, a kind of bi-directional relationship between the doctor, um, physician, usually, and the patient, sometimes it's a nurse practitioner, where you can have that kind of open conversation and people still feel confident they're getting the best care, that helps change it from adherence to something that's, co- that's co-created where both parties make a commitment to each other for a plan and they feel comfortable talking to each other when they can't, um, when they can't follow this plan. I just wanted to know if you could, for most of our listeners, if you could actually define what underinsured means, because that's, that's a term that we hear bantied about, but doesn't really have a good definition for it. So what, what is the definition of underinsured? So I think underinsured is that people don't have adequate insurance. A lot of it is um, a, a lot of people have high deductible plans that are really only cover catastrophic costs. Um, a lot of people have 
Um, very high things change where they have very high deductibles, whether it's with their pharmaceutical benefits or um, with their pharmacy benefits or whether it's with seeing specialists. Um, and so that's what primarily happens with underinsured. And then there, you know, there also has been a sort of undermining of some of the tenants of the Affordable Care Act in, ter in terms of the quality of insurance coverage that people that that um, that the insurance has to follow. So a lot of our patients are in that mode of switching back and forth between cheaper insurance um, and nobody anticipate, most people don't anticipate that they're going to be ill. So you don't choose an insurance policy with the idea that you're going to need a lot of insurance. So people look at it for what their current circumstances are rather than taking a longer view of it. And I would say um, that is another place to start a conversation with patients and between patients and healthcare providers is is talking about the kind of insurance somebody has and how that how they can fit a treatment plan into that insurance. So, so that's like saying, uh, for example, let's say that you're 35, you have no medical problems really, and so you you go ahead and sign into a high deductible plan, thinking I don't I don't need this, but then two three years later you're diagnosed with diabetes, and now you have to pay down that deductible each year. Is that am I? kind of following along correctly there? Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, that actually happened to me, not with diabetes, but with cancer, I was 35. I had decent insurance. Um, but I was 35 when I was first diagnosed with cancer and it took me, um, it took me years to pay off the debt that wasn't, I paid my medical debt right away, but all of the kind of costs of daily living, Mm -hmm. were things that I ended up taking me years to pay off. And even now, when I was diagnosed with my third cancer, it um, the diagnosis was in one year plan year and the surgery was in the second plan year. So even with with quite decent insurance, it, it doesn't cover what it used to cover, I think. And it also, people choose high deductible plans. I, the, the other thing we find is that high deductible plans work really well for somebody who's getting it through, can work well, not everybody, but can work well for people who are getting it through their employers when their employer makes a contribution to their health savings account. But if you're doing it, to, if you don't have that contribution and you choose a high deductible plan, medical debt is just snowballs. And um, it can, and it starts, it starts and it just keeps on going and going. So um, it is, High deductible plans are really not the answer to reducing insurance costs for individuals. I, th I think it's important for us to talk about this. And there's more and more people signing up for high deductible plans. But I just want to point out that cost sharing is going up for everyone, regardless of their insurance. So everyone is feeling the rising cost of health care. Yes. Paul, you looked like you were going to say something. Yeah, I, actually, I wanted to ask Jessica, I, I feel like a lot of the, the framing of these conversations, I think, is necessarily and appropriately patient-centric. But I was just wondering, do we have a general sense of how physicians feel about initiating and having these conversations? Are they comfortable? Do they want to? Or is this something that we'd rather just sort of sit on our hands and kind of hope it doesn't come up? <laughs> a little bit of all of that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I think that physicians recognize their patients are struggling with the cost of healthcare. And they want to talk about it, but they're scared. And if you look at the literature, patients and doctors say they want to talk about it, but they don't. And 
the most common thing I hear from doctors is that, well, what if they say they are struggling, then what do I do? (laughs) Yeah, you can't screen for something if you don't know how to treat it. (laughs) Exactly. It's kind of like asking about night sweats. When it comes back positive, you're like, well, shoot, now I have to do something about this. I, I was going to, Paul, you, you kind of read my mind here with the, the, the whole jumping to this. I, I, as a, I, feel, I feel guilty not talking about this, but I don't feel well prepared with what to do if, if patients screen positive for concerns about cost of care. And some of the things I was looking at in the ACP toolkit and some of the other resources that we reviewed in here is like sort of helping patients plan, like put together a care plan for a diagnosis, like a cost of care plan and kind of estimating how many visits they have and how much the lab tests and medications and things like that cost. I, I've never been taught how to do that. And, and it seems like that should probably be a routine part of education. But I, I guess to, to backtrack a little bit from that, Jessica, do you think there's a reason why we've come this far where patients and doctors until now we're talking about it, but haven't really had like this kind of same kind of consumer mentality about healthcare that they do about other things, like just shopping on Amazon to buy like a new bike helmet or something. You read the reviews. It's very easy to see how much other ones cost. Jump rope. Sorry. Thank you, Paul. Jump rope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you, you know, it's it's very easy to figure out how things much things cost, the quality. It's But healthcare is not like that. You think it'll change? And why has it been this way so long? Yeah, I think it's much easier on Amazon to find out how much something's going to cost. And before you check out, you know, the taxes and the shipping costs, but that's really hard to do in medicine. And with everybody having different health insurance, it's hard to really give someone an exact estimate of their cost. Mm -hmm. And then I think things change. People negotiate. So price changes all the time. But I think that we're getting closer to cost transparency. The other thing is, I would say that it's easier to know what to look for in a bike helmet. Um, you can read about it and say, you know, make sure you, I know nothing about bike helmets. So maybe I should have gone with a different <laughs> analogy. But Jump rope, you know, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could look up on Google. Uh, I could just Google it and say, what do I need to look for in a bike helmet? But that's hard to do with medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're looking for a thoracic surgeon or something like that it's, you know, like it's just such a foreign thing to most people probably until they need one that their baseline level of knowledge of that is, is just nothing. Like most people will probably have used a jump rope before Paul, but they, they probably (laughs) never needed a thoracic surgeon until they need one. And then it's probably overwhelming to try to figure out, uh, what to, what to do about that. Um, I, I do, I do want to know, like, is there, is there something that's been gained? Like who's gaining by everyone being in the dark about costs? Like, are, is it the insurance or the hospitals or the pharmaceuticals device? Is everybody benefiting from us being in the dark about costs? Jessica, I'll let, I'll throw it to you or Gwen, you can chime in. That's a good question that I haven't thought about, but I would, ex- I, my gut tells me that someone is <laughs> benefiting from yeah. people being in the dark. Um, and, Maybe it's that it's taken us a long time to figure out that the system is broken. Yeah. And if we were to figure that out and come together, maybe we could actually fix it. I feel like now that, as you mentioned, like regardless of insurance, how people are getting care, everyone is having more of like, they're having more skin in the game essentially. And maybe for a long time, like co-pays were low enough and premiums were low enough that people just, you know, weren't thinking about it as much. I, I don't know. It's my, my theory. But I, I don't, 
I, you know, I'm not sure that there's some nefarious plot to make money. I think it's more about chaos and it's more about not developing the culture around um, healthcare delivery the same way that in, in the same way that our our culture at large has developed. I think there are many, many actors in the system who probably make, who make a lot of money and healthcare is a business um, for many people. But I think that a lot of the primary stakeholders in the healthcare community are not thinking about, they think they're thinking of it as care, not as um, profit. And so I think everybody, I, I, I think everybody has good intentions, not maybe not everybody, but I think we, so I will say my husband's a, uh, my husband's a therapist. He does a ton of couples therapy. And so one of the, one of his, found, one of his founding principles is assume good intentions. So I try to put that into practice and, and, and the work that I do. Um, but I think individuals have good intentions. It, it, yeah. it may not be the systems or the organizations that always have good intentions, but I think individuals who are in the healthcare field have good intentions. So the the lack of transparency in healthcare costs benefits neither the patient nor the physician that who's producing the 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 healthcare what it it's kind of a a side effect of contract negotiations from both from an insurance standpoint to bring down healthcare costs but unfortunately that's like saying that I'm going to go to the store and as a consumer, because essentially the insurance company is an indirect consumer of healthcare, that's like me going to a store and saying, uh, you know, I see you're selling that milk for $4. How about my family of seven will continue using your store, but will buy that milk for $3.50? And if you say no, if we have a large enough family, we say we're going to go to another store, they'll say, you know what? That three dollars fifty cents sounded great, and so what ends up happening over time is that the cost of that milk gets inflated because they know that I will always buy it for three dollars and fifty cents. So if I'm if I'm purchasing the majority of that of that milk, then it doesn't matter what they charge someone who is not part of my family or part of my company, right? And so it inflates the cost of that over time. In fact, it encourages inflation of cost over time. And because the cost controls are not in the hands of the producer, the physicians, the um, those who are actually providing the healthcare, it will continuously cause inflation in healthcare until that is reversed on its head. All right, let's transition into some practical cases. Uh, I think, why don't we talk about Ms. Q first? Uh, she's a 48-year-old uh, overweight female with type 2 diabetes on metformin. She has no history of ASCVD. She does not have chronic kidney disease. Um, today, she comes in to, to refill a prescription for metformin. And just to follow up in general, you'd like to check a hemoglobin A1C in a lipid panel today. So I guess, just sort of speaking broadly, um, why don't we start with Jessica? How would you just sort of incorporate screening for cost concerns into this interaction for your routine? So how do you bring up with the patient um, any kind of screening questions about whether or not this is costing too much for her? Sure. First, let me remind you, I'm a pulmonologist, sure. so I'm going <laughs> to avoid talking about diabetes. <laughs> okay. We can make it inhalers. I feel like those change on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it was exactly. I was going to move into COPD management, perhaps. Yeah, let's. We'll change it. Uh, did Paul say diabetes? He meant COPD, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> she needs pulmonary function testing. <laughs> Perfect. Strong work, Wado. So I'll be totally honest with you. It it has changed, and I think it's important to think about the flow, um, not just the resources you're going to use, and figure out your own flow. When I first started having cost of care conversations, it would happen that. 
when I prescribed inhalers because inhalers have become so unbelievably expensive, even with insurance prescription coverage, it was very frequent that a patient would actually feel comfortable to bring it up to me and saying, I pay $300 for my maintenance inhaler a month. I can't do this. So now what I do is I tell all my patients, I'm going to prescribe tests and medications and I've heard from a lot of my other patients that sometimes the copay is too much and it's cost prohibitive. If that happens, please reach out to me and you and I will figure out another plan. Love that. That's very practical. <laughs> very usable information there. Now, okay, so when Mrs. Q, when Miss Q calls you back and says, uh, Jessica or Dr. Dine, I, uh, my copay is $300. What's what's your next what's your next step? Do you have a go to person in the office, or do you do you actually handle that yourself? I usually handle it myself. Although we now have a social worker that works with us who helps me out with resources. The way I've approached this is I when my patients first started telling me about the cost of inhalers, I knew nothing about how much they actually cost. Mm -hmm. So I wrote down the most frequent tests and medications that I prescribe. So for me, that would be pulmonary function tests and a CAT scan of the chest, and then the different types of inhalers and nebulizers. And I went to the different cost estimators online that are free. Um, and then I just kind of looked and saw on average what are patients being charged for these and only got to know those. So the ones that I prescribe the most. Could you could you give a couple of those sites? We can include them. I, I know we're not endorsing any specific ones, or if you want to endorse any specific ones, you're you're welcome to. But just just to give, and we'll we'll put a list of these in the show notes. Yeah, the first one I learned about with was healthcarebluebook.com. So that's the one I use most frequently because I'm most comfortable with it. But more recently, I started using Fair Health, um, which I think is actually a little bit more user friendly. The healthcarebluebook.com, if I send patients to it, it's hard for them to use because you have to know the exact name of the test or CPT code. It took me a while to find spirometry, for example, That's and fair, fair consumer is a little bit easier. But there's a whole bunch. Um, and the, on the ACP website, they also have a list of, of all the online res resources to estimate cost. Mm-hmm. And when I've used the the healthcare blue book and you, you just kind of put in the zip code and then it has, it has like a, a slider at the bottom. It'll say like, it's like a red, yeah, red, yellow, and green light. And it says like, here's like what would be a fair price, the price in the market for, I looked up like an MRI of the knee or something. And it was like anywhere from like $500 to $2,900, depending on where you went in the zip code that I looked up. And, and then it said, you know, maybe paying around $700, $800, I'm just making this up, was was like the the green saying, like, if you can get a price like that, that's probably okay. Is And that's telling you the out-of-pocket potential out-of-pocket costs, or that's telling you, like, what the insurance, the bill the insurance company might see, and then you figure, okay, I pay about seven, my insurance company pays 70 or 80%, I pay 20 or 30% of this number? Yeah, most of them will be the charger. So what, and so the consumer will pay a fraction of that. Okay. 
Right. So that like Stuart was talking about these inflated prices that the deliver that they they will send to the insurer, the insurer will negotiate, pay their part and then you'll get some percentage of that cost. Right. Okay. But but I guess it's still useful to the person uh, these are simple questions. I apologize, but it's just useful to the person because, I mean, if you're paying a percent, a small percentage of like two hundred dollars versus two thousand dollars, you know, your your out of pocket costs are going to be lower. You still don't know exactly what they'll be. Yeah, I haven't found them to be that helpful to send patients there, but I found it really helpful for my residents. Okay. So when I first got into this, I asked people to. Um, estimate their practice pattern. Like, are you someone who orders a lot of tests or hardly any tests? And what would what would you guys guess? What did most people think they they were? Not a lot. They're they're very judicious users of healthcare resources. Yeah, no one ordered tests. <laughs> um, and so then I asked them to estimate, like, how much does a CBC cost, for example? And the range was from a penny to thousands of dollars. <laughs> oh dear. And it's not a fair question because all of those could, I guess, be right. But it, it gave me an insight into that as physicians, we just have no idea how much it costs to provide the care that we recommend. So I think for us, it's a good practice just to get to know the average cost of the things that we prescribe. Mm-hmm. This is not completely on point, but that reminds me of the great study, um, which is less relevant these days, where they interviewed physicians about how they felt they were impacted by swag from pharmaceutical companies. And of course, everyone's like, well, no, not me. I'm completely incorruptible. And then they asked them how they felt everybody else was influenced by like, oh, yeah, those guys are being completely bought off. So it's always everybody else is the problem, but I'm probably doing okay. Um, our producer is telling me that her EMR tells her how many labs she orders. You, you, it it kind of estimates. Is that right? Yeah, it tells you. So it's really only very common labs. So CBC or BMP, mm-hmm. it has a number. It's like $11.30. And it's interesting. It really makes you think about it sometimes. Right. Or it will say. Ordering the daily lab and letting it ride. It, yeah. It yeah. Or it'll say a different amount. It doesn't do it for everything, but I found it useful. Yeah. the One of the EMRs I trained on um, allowed us to actually follow the cost. And so the residents would would have like a, a a pool to see how much something costs. So we would, you know, an MRI would be ordered. So we'd see how, how much that cost increased to determine how much that MRI costs. And we, we were able to pretty much estimate what things cost within a plus or minus, you know, 10 to 20% pretty well by by using that and that really did change how we approach you know should we continue should we order this this cat scan should we not order this cat scan because we knew that a lot of the patients that we were taking care of they were underinsured or uninsured and so we knew that they were going to receive this inflated bill and was it really going to change our management to order those labs every day or get that you know that that imaging study or you know is there a better way for us to approach this without just overutilizing the resources that we had I think the way to bring that back to our cost of care conversations is that it's really about value, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I often hear from physicians or patients and audiences when I talk about cost of care that they're scared about getting sub-quality care if they start bringing up cost. And so I'll argue that if you recommend a test or a treatment that a patient can't afford and then they're unable to 
have that recommended treatment. That's worse than, well, here are the options and here are some options that you might be able to afford. And at least we're treating, you're treating your primary complaint. Right. And, and I think that's really, really important to um, bring up the, bring up this whole idea that patients um, are, are scared that if they share their financial concerns with with their healthcare teams that they will receive suboptimal care or that they will um, somehow have things withheld from them. And it's very, very difficult to talk about what um, value care, it, values are in care because patients and um, healthcare providers, because everybody has a different definition of what the word value is. But the other thing that's very difficult to talk about and it's something I've been working on a lot um, is a notion of trying to eliminate low-value care so that we can have more, um, as they said, I was on a panel that said, eliminating low-value care for creating headroom for high-value care and innovation. And so that's a very, you know, that's a very important and very difficult thing to do. And um, and a lot of patients uh, still remember, they, they will immediately go to this notion of rationing or um, or who's worthy and who's unworthy, and um, that requires that requires a really open, interesting relationship in order to do that. Um, it's the same thing with generics. I mean, you you all know that there are some generics that are exact that are um, that can be substituted, and some that can't. But if when there's a generic that can, it's um, that that is a way of reducing uh, low value care. So. I think that's an incredibly important point that we that that is an important for both um, for for the the kind of um, patient physician dyad that's there and and how they communicate with each other is to make it clear that this is something. I mean, this is one of the things that Jessica said that was so I thought it was so critical, and this is what what we saw in the research and in the anal supplement. You'll see that that. If you normalize that conversation so you have it with absolutely everybody, then it doesn't, people don't feel as if they're being profiled or stratified based on how they appear, where they live, what their zip code is, um, what you see when you look at them. Uh, and so I, I, this, this, this kept on, this came up over and over again, this idea of normalizing and Jessica's approach is such a simple, elegant, perfect way of normalizing, which is acknowledging it upfront and acknowledging that other, other, many other of her patients are having similar barriers to cost of care. Thanks, Gwen. <laughs> Jessica, part of what came up when I was doing the pre-reading for this show was this this idea of making a cost of care plan let's say someone is is starting treatment for a lung cancer and you're going to estimate like what their what their costs might be in in practicality is that something that you're doing for patients or that we should be striving to do it i know there was some kind of worksheets that the ACP has on their site for for figuring this out it seemed like it would be fairly labor intensive to put it all together yeah i don't used a worksheet, to be honest, but don't tell the ACP that. <laughs> They're not listening to this. <laughs> so the kind of worksheet that um, is that you've mentioned has been used in oncology treatments and pregnancy-related care, and patients really appreciate it. For me, it's 
a little less predictable about what patients will need. Um, but I tend to have a conversation with them that their first visit, you know, we're going to try to get your treat, your symptoms under control. That's going to take us about three months. And then hopefully at that point, you'll be controlled. I'll see you back every six months. We'll get breathing tests every six months. And then when you're really stable, then it'll be a once a year visit. But call me anytime you need it in between. So it's much more informal. But I do recommend doing it. And one of the studies in the annual supplement, the patients actually improved their adherence because they were able to plan uh, with their copays and transportation costs. And the unpredictability made them less likely to come back because they didn't know what else they might have to pay in future. Mm -hmm. They can plan time off from work and things like that because you're letting them know that, okay, once every six months or so or that I'll, I'll need to take time off for these, these things. I also now ask what would be most helpful mm-hmm. for what they're struggling with the most. Um, I was giving this talk with a patient representative about these cost of care conversations. And I told the story how I try to have my patients have their CAT scan, their breathing tests, and then me all on the same day to try to not have to come back on multiple days. And then she told the story on how she hates it when she has three appointments in the same day because of all the co-pays. And then she has to buy lunch and then she has to pay day childcare all day. So now I just ask, I'm like, what do you prefer? Do you prefer coming in on one day or do you want to do it separately because of co-pays? Again, just don't make assumptions, just ask. Wow. Um, Gwen, I, with the question I just asked Jessica about kind of this cost of care planning, have you, have you met physicians or, um, people taking care of you that really like kind of laid things out for you like this that helped you plan and, or have you ever filled out any of these worksheets when you were on your cancer journey to sort of like expect what the cost might be, help you plan for those? Um, I, I have not had that experience and I've had incredibly good, um, high quality medical care. I think that the part where I've always felt that there was a little bit of a lack was in the transition planning. And a lot of it has to do with cost of care. But I will say the last, um, my third cancer was endometrial cancer. So it's all been a kind of cascade of events. So I found Hodgkin's lymphoma. I had, it was in my mediastinum. I had radiation. Then 20 years later, I got breast cancer, which might've been related. And then I took tamoxifen and then I got endometrial cancer. So there's a little bit of a domino effect there potentially. Um, But when I was having surgery, um, this last time, about a little over a year ago, the hospital called me and they talked through the cost with me and they wanted to make sure before I went in that I could, um, they wanted to see whether I could pay the copay all at once, whether I wanted to come up with a payment plan. And so that was really, you know, that was really terrific. And, and so the last two cancers I had, um, I didn't have any, um, I had no uh, adjuvant therapy. I have adjuvant hormone, hormone therapy, but that's just taking a pill. I, the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the treatment was chemo and radiation. And at that point, 25 years ago, people weren't really talking about it and they weren't thinking about that. They weren't thinking about what the impact was going to be. They weren't thinking about, I mean, one of the biggest impacts were the supportive drugs. Um, so the, um, drug to increase my red blood count. I had, you know, that was something that we didn't even consider. 
Uh, and I remember I was home over Christmas and my dad, um, my dad, as you could imagine, was pretty um, shaken up by the whole diagnosis. But then he also wanted to do something. And he um, he got me the shots of the and he wanted to give them to me. He was and he got the, the shots of the red blood cell booster and the costs were just phenomenal. He was shocked at the cost. He had no idea. And this was with the this was with my insurance. So what happened then, I think, has not been completely solved now, which is that it's not just the cost of your uh, the treatment. It's the supportive care. It's, as Jessica said, her patient, the parking, the um, paying for lunch, paying for three copays in one day. And that's a very that that nobody has ever asked me. Um, and it also depends on the kind of disease, you, right? the kind of diagnosis you have, because with um, with diagnoses that aren't as straightforward, I mean, these things aren't total aren't deterministic. I mean, you know, there is always something that can change, and there are always decision points where you become a consumer again, not just a patient, um, and have to make those decisions. And I think those are the areas where it's really, really critical to be able to have a conversation and be able to have a relationship where you can have that conversation, because there are things things absolutely change over the course of treatment um and our you know our case managers will work with with we we get people calling up and saying you know i i'm just overwhelmed i put all my bills in a box i don't know what to do i'm you know we had i i can't i can't i can't begin to start with it so our case managers will do things like they'll say okay let's take one bills from one of your providers or one lab at a time, and let's just put those all in one one place, and they'll go through it piece by piece. And the other thing that they do is they'll make conference calls to the doctor, to the insurance company, to um, the lab with the patients, and and help build that capacity for having those conversations. Uh, so it, it's it is a it's a building process, and um, but it's a building process that built on communication, that's built on trust, that's built on a relationship. And I think that if we don't start in those areas, we'll, we, will never, we will never overcome the barriers to these conversations. Um, transparency tools are great, cost tools are great, but they're tools. And the t tools are only work when you have a, when the people that are using them are able to have the conversation about it and reveal and feel comfortable revealing what they need to reveal in order to make those decisions. So I did want to give you each a chance to just give one or two take-home points and uh, and then also if you wanted to plug anything. I guess some of the take-homes take-home for me was that the that the only way cost of care conversations are going to work is this, if they're normalized and they happen with everybody who's in a practice. That, um, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, throw away your preconceived notions. Don't assume anything about anybody, and have this conversation with everyone. Um, anybody who has a diagnosis is serious or life threatening is going to have a is going to have financial um, a financial impact. It is one of the primary side effects of um, of a significant diagnosis. Um, and then I guess the final thing I would say in terms of, of some of the work that we've been doing is we our our role in this project was to help um, help educate and facilitate dialogue with 
patient groups, patient advocacy, patient advocacy organizations, and patients. And to that end, we did we have a um, section on our website uh, that has a lot of the um, that has patient and patient advocacy facing materials around cost of care. And we have a toolkit that um, has a web version with a lot of videos on it, and we have a toolkit that you can download as a PDF to help facilitate these cost of care conversations. Can you give your website the web address? Yes, it's www.npaf.org. And that's the National Patient Advocate Foundation. Jessica, can you give one or two take-home points for the audience? And then if you wanted to plug any websites or any resources that you'd like to recommend for the audience. My take-home point is just do it. Uh, I think patients and physicians want to talk about cost. We're both scared to. And don't let perfect be the enemy of the good here. Just do it. Talk to your patients. See where it goes. And then go find some resources. I guess the place I would start um, is I'll tell you a couple different tools. Um, So if you Google ACP High Value Care, it'll bring you to the cost conversation resources and they're all listed on there. My two favorites are needy meds. Um, Although it has meds in the title, it actually gives you a lot of different resources that help with certain direct medical costs. And then the American Academy of Family Physicians has a neighborhood navigator tool that you that helps with a lot of indirect medical costs. Um, so have the conversation, go check out these tools, and then figure out how do you incorporate it into your practice so that it actually happens. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Mmm, yummy. I mean, half-hearted. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That is correct, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need Paul's feedback. So please, Paul, subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact Matt directly at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Elena Gibson, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris, the Chewy Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I'm Matt Watto. Elena Gibson here. <laughs> and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thanks and goodbye. Well, hi, Paul. You were here. What, what is the best advice that you've received as an educator, learner, or mentor? Stuart, you got to throw it to a specific person. <laughs> I am so sorry. So, <laughs> Thanks for asking, Stuart. Um, probably the best advice I've ever received. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, Gwen, let, let's start with you.